Arriving in Zurich as it limbers up for Christmas feels like a masterclass in twinkling, beguiling Yuletide charm. On the way to the studio to record this episode, I passed dozens of bushy spruce, coteries of people sipping piping hot glasses of glühwein, and even a live singing Christmas tree in Verdmull Platz, where children dressed as elves performed carols on tiered platforms from within a giant Nordman pine. This episode of Confect Corner invokes the same spirit. It's a celebration of the season that seeks to discover some of the quirks and rituals that make it so unique. We'll journey to Saxony, to a region that specialises in crafting wooden figurines, and find out about preserving whittling and lacquer methods through the generations. We'll learn about the art of wreath weaving with horticulturalist Tom Broom Hughes and find out how to wrestle greenery from the garden hedges and fashion it into lush, ecological decorations. We'll also be cooking up hearty recipes in the Austrian ski resort of Lech with chefs Ethel Hoon and Jakob Zeller. And there's a twirl on the dance floor, of course, because December wouldn't be the party season without hitting the tiles just once. If you're wondering how to weather it all without becoming a little one, then keep listening to meet a modern-day apothecary and hear about her tips for maintaining health, happiness and beautiful skin in winter. This is our very merry edition of Confect Corner, and I'm Sophie Grove. I really love ivy because to me it really represents Christmas and I love that whole idea of the holly and the ivy. You know, I think that's really important and it's nice to have something that grows abundantly as long as you leave some of the berries for the birds. The sun can be really powerful in the winter and the snow can also be almost like a mirror reflecting the sun on the skin. So don't shy away from using SPF. And this is also a great time of year to consider adding more treatment focused products to your routine. My addiction to choreography exploded in lockdown. As the world lost all sense of structure, I created my own. The wooden floors of my Vienna Outbau became a dance studio. I even resisted buying a coffee table for a year so I wouldn't have to move furniture for a class. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and for this episode, I'm delighted to say that I'm not in my usual spot in Studio One of Midori House in London, but instead I'm sitting next to Marcella Palak in our Zurich outpost. And in Julian's absence, our wonderful deputy editor, Chiara Rumella, is joining us from London. Hello to you both. Well, Sophie, I miss you already. Over here in this lonely, sad studio, it feels so much colder without you. It's been about 12 hours since I was by your side, Chiara. That's we all are, worrying. We are super happy that Sophie's our guest today. It's very nice to be here and it's beautiful. I mean, I've been in Zurich for only a matter of hours, but I've already drunk in this wonderful Christmassy, amazing, twinkly, cosy environment that you inhabit, Marcella. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's a good time to be in Zurich. It's, yeah, it's perfect. It's getting dark slowly, so the lights go on. It's completely Christmassy already. And it's really quite 
interesting, in fact, to be here in Dufour Strasse, in the cafe, a little bit of glue vine, people sipping and having coffees in our midst, little audience even. <laughs> it's quite fun. Yeah, we're having a little show here, so for our guests, um, yeah. So that's the hubbub for the listeners, in case you wondered <laughs> where we were. Um, now we always like to start with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. So Marcella, what do you have for us this month? So I visited lately the beautiful traditional spa town Baden-Baden, which is actually just two and a half train hours from Zurich. And I discovered a wonderful old school patisserie. It's called Café König. And I fell completely in love because I discovered a Christstollen. In case you don't know what it is, it's a traditional German Christmas cake with marzipan and it's covered with white powdered sugar. So I discovered a Christstollen with poppy. They also have with almonds and butter only, but the one with poppy is just heaven pure, I tell you. And you have to believe me, I'm not a sweet person. I'm not a person with a sweet tooth, but this poppy crystal i will be ready to go back two and a half hours just to buy more of this crystal i love and, that the yeah. baden baden the place of the cleanse the yeah. spa town yes. <laughs> it's done the That's absolute the opposite for you Marcella. Yes. i know <laughs> they have also the schwarzwälder torte so it's i'm kind of ambivalent with this spa thing yeah i have like two sides I you can sweet. detox and yeah. retox yes. almost well, exactly. at the same time <laughs> yes and right. Chiara, what about you? What have you been doing and thinking about this month? Well, as well as being the deputy editor of Comfect, I also wear another hat, which is the one of cultural editor for Monocle. So I always try to go to as many exhibitions as I can fit in my weekend routines. And I have to say, I went to a particularly interesting one in the past month. It's just at the Goldsmith CCA, which is round the corner from where I live. And the exhibition is about an Italian fashion designer and polymath, really, called Cinzia Ruggi. Many people don't really know about her because she was very, I guess, underestimated in the history of fashion. But she was such a seminal figure in the 70s and 80s. She had her own line and she was so influential in shaping that really extravagant avant-garde aesthetic of the 80s. Think about weird geometric shapes, really strong shoulders, you know, the proper kind of 80s idea that you have in your head. She was so instrumental in shaping that. And the show is just fabulous because... There's her clothes on racks, on mannequins, but also the videos of the catwalks. And at the time, you know, everything just felt so experimental and so daring in a way that perhaps right now it's just different. We're a bit more used to catwalks walking in a particular way, but they were able to go with the concept and really, really embrace it. And I think that's wonderful. There's videos of her which are kind of almost installation-y and some sculpture work as well. I particularly enjoyed, I have to say a pair of boots which are in the shape of Italy my home country but of course you know you think of Italy and everybody refers to it as the boot why had nobody made a boot in the shape of Italy before Cinzia well she did and you can go see it at Goldsmith CCA and Sophie what about you what do you have for us this month well mine is something in the art world too but I wanted to kind of reflect also on light in the city and lights at this time of year because it's such a wonderful moment because 
the afternoons are closing in and it gets dark in London at sort of 4.15 or something ludicrous. I feel that light is so important now for just our sense of wellness, our sense of kind of almost sort of wintering is very important. And I went to an interesting exhibition, which was Neon Arc, in fact, in Mayfair by the artist Douglas Gordon, who was sort of doing a live neon sort of installation of one of his pieces, working with a craftsman from Hackney who uses a lot of neon and makes neon really for shops. But it was reflecting on how neon used to be really something to do with the commerce and to do with advertising, but now it's really disappearing and it's becoming, in a sense, a craft and an art form. And the nuance of the light that it actually gives out is something that's very important to artists and and artists like Dan Flavin or Sylvie Fleury, who has an amazing sort of piece in Geneva, which I love. It just made me think about light and darkness, but also the changing meaning of that in our lives. I think it's one of the things that always strikes me whenever I go to Swiss cities, particularly Geneva, you know, when you approach the lake and those wonderful buildings with these really striking neon are there at the top. It really comes to define the identity of a city. I think that Italy is a great country when it comes to signage for shops, frequently a bit on a smaller scale and not always necessarily with the same grandeur of the grand neons that you can see in Geneva or in Oslo, where I was recently as well, where you have such long nights and these neons really come to define the way that you even imagine the city in winter. I did a piece for Monocle years ago where I had to climb up to the rooftops of Geneva and inspect and look at the neons, which ones were digital, which ones were actually authentic neon. I think I nearly lost my life clambering up those ladders. <laughs> Not for our health and safety actually. For the journalistic story, the journalistic <laughs> yes. spirit. The frontier, that's really it. I live to tell the tale. As the winter months settle in, it's important to adopt a healthy skincare regime for the cold air. This doesn't necessarily mean implementing a 15-step programme with a hefty price tag, but it is about finding that special brand and product that works for you. This is where Eden comes in, a modern-day apothecary based in Des Moines that has been a proud purveyor of self-care since 2003. Here, each product on the shelf has been carefully selected and tested by the team, often with a focus on smaller, family-owned businesses in need of a much-deserved spotlight. After years as a customer, in 2020, Hannah Krauss became the proud owner of Eden. Coming from the corporate world where she used to work for media brands, she saw in Eden an opportunity to preserve a small business that had become a harbour for the community. And I'm happy to say that I spoke to Hannah earlier and I started by asking her about her vision for taking over Eden. When I took over the shop, I kind of became even more laser focused on the sourcing and really like hunting for what was truly specialty. You know, over time, brands like Kiehl's and L'Occitane that we carry became a lot more common. And, you know, they're sold in a lot of department stores and sort of big box beauty retailers here in the States. And while they're great brands, I just thought, you know, people walk into a boutique for a really curated experience. And I wanted to have brands that are sort of the best and the gold standard in special cities around the world. It's interesting that you have that really local identity, but also global reach. And 
just looking at your website, you can see these brands that really surprise and delight, family-run. I was looking at Le Prunier, which is a North Carolina family with a kind of amazing plum orchard who <laughs> seems to have gone into making great products. Tell me about discovering some of these smaller brands and then integrating them into your concept. You know, coming from the magazine world, I will forever have a love of magazines. I am constantly reading what other people use and love. So I find people whose opinion I respect. I find brands whose opinion I respect. And then I follow them really closely just to see what they're using. Um, you know, another thing that we do is we try everything. I mean, I am constantly ordering products that we don't carry to try them and use them. And at the end of the day, there's so many beautifully packaged things with wonderful stories and well-designed brands, but they have to work and they have to really have an efficacy and a formulation that works and that we feel good about selling to our customers. But I think that hunt for uh, those special stories and special brands is the best part, especially in this culture and in this like environment and the world right now, I think it's also important for us as a small business that we find brands that are a values fit for us too. And how did you stumble upon that? Just reading a review and have you engaged with the family in a meaningful way? Has your quest taken you on a few adventures too? There's actually a really cool story with Le Prunier. So it's three sisters who live in Northern California and grew up on plum orchards. And they developed this product, probably launched like five years ago. And it's a facial oil that's extraordinary because it's single ingredient. It's just pressed organic plum pits. It also smells like you're putting like a pastry on your face in the morning. <laughs> and um, we kept reading about it and thought, you know what, we have to bring this in. The story's lovely. And we tried the product and we were like, oh my goodness, it's just like feels so luxurious and smells naturally so wonderful. So we got our first shipment in on a Tuesday. And that next day, Wednesday morning, Chrissy Teigen on her Instagram that Le Prunier is her skincare secret. And we sold out of our entire stock of Le Prunier within about 20 minutes. And so I saved the last bottle we didn't sell that one. And we sent it as a gift to Chrissy Teigen with a letter just saying like, this was such a thrill for a small business. And if you ever forget this, just know that, you know, what you do does a lot of good and sort of makes people's days better. And she went on her Instagram and read this letter from us and talked about our store and thanked us. And she was like, tear-filled and crying and so kind and sweet. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that over the course of the next three days, we truly sold out of almost everything in our store. I think it was just like the human interest story that everyone needed in that moment. It was like November of 2021, there were some dark days. People from all over the country were just like, so happy to support you. What a cool story. Good for you. I love that you wrote a thank you note. And like The power yeah, we, of the thank you friend. note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell me, winter is upon us. I was just reflecting how this time of year is a real assault on the body because we're going to parties, the weather is getting chilly, so the environment's changing, the heating is pretty dry. Can you tell me how you personally sort of weather this period with a skincare regime and just give us a few tips? Because I know the winter is particularly cold in Iowa. So a couple things 
non-skincare related first, because I, I sometimes feel like those are the real unsung heroes. When it gets really cold and dry, I sleep with a humidifier on my bed, like on my table next to my bed. And I think that I've seen a significant difference in the health of my skin in the drier months to sleep with a humidifier throughout the night. The other one, which just is obvious, but so often overlooked is drinking a ton of water. Internal hydration really plays a big role in just the vibrancy of your skin. SPF is so important in the winter and the sun can be really powerful in the winter and the snow can also be almost like a mirror reflecting the sun on the skin. So don't shy away from using SPF. And this is also a great time of year to consider adding more treatment focused products to your routine. So if you have a cleanser and a toner and a moisturizer that you know and love, that's great. Keep using those, but you could layer in, for example, like a hyaluronic acid serum that would really do its job to like deeply hydrate the skin. So more penetrating to lower layers of your skin and hydrating versus being more topical. There are hyaluronic serums. There are like some mists and toners that have hydrating properties. And there are some really great masks as well that you can sort of spot treat or keep on for 20 minutes at night or some sleeping masks as well to just kind of give yourself an extra dose of hydration. And are there any particular products or brands that you think really come into their moment in winter? Yes. Augustinus Batter is our best-selling skincare line in the store. And their rich cream is, I think, their best product. It is ultra hydrating and if you are someone who just needs simplicity, you could solely get that this time of year and just use that morning and night. And I'm telling you, your skin will just survive a harsh winter like you've never experienced before. I also am a big fan of Dr. Barbara Sturm. She makes a really beautiful hyaluronic serum. They're called her Glow Drops, a really beautifully hydrating serum that really truly gives you that sort of like glowing from inside out look. The last kind of hero wintertime product I'll mention is Josh Rosebrook, which is one of those sort of lovelier, smaller known brands that's very natural. They make hydrating accelerator. It's just like a hyaluronic acid facial mist and hydrating drops. That's kind of the same in a serum. And that really works to pull product deeper into the skin and more deeply hydrate. And those are really a lovely price point to the Josh Rosebrook products. It's interesting to hear your life as a kind of modern day apothecary. It's also a very fascinating time for skincare in the sense that there are these smaller brands coming through. I wonder whether your role has really changed even in the years that you've been in charge of Eden. Do you feel that you are really part of the community in Des Moines and that you have revived that sense of the apothecary? I do. You know, we've, the shop itself is almost 20 years old. And so we have a really incredible community of customers that really trust our team and our brand to help guide them when it comes to seasonal skincare, what's going on in their self-care routine. I think we we have what a lot of small businesses do where people also just stop in to like show us pictures of their grandkids and talk about what they're reading. And um, that also helps build the trust that it takes to really be advising people on 
It was interesting what you said earlier about just the changing landscape of skincare. I think that's one way where we've also tried to carve out our niche and focus on like our small roots is there is so much what I think is clutter in the skincare industry right now. It feels like every celebrity has launched a skincare line. It can feel confusing, like which one is actually the best, you know, and everyone boasts that this is the miracle thing. We take the approach of, we don't really talk about skincare as solving all of your problems or being a miracle anything. I think we try to find brands that really feel they have a lasting heritage and a good story and use good methods and formulations. And we try to find those that we really think are going to last. And that was Hannah Krause, the owner of Eden Apothecary. And you can find more about them at EdenIowa.com. Marcella, do you have a different skincare regime in winter as opposed to summer? I suspect possibly. <laughs> yeah, well, I use, of course, less sun protection. But um, in winter, especially when it gets dry and cold, I love masks, all kind of masks. I have like different kinds of and whatever I feel needs my skin, I'm using it and for example, I love the luxurious Sisley masks or these great Susanne Kaufmann masks. And after a nice hammam, I just can recommend it. The hammam mask combination yeah. is vital for surviving yes. a Swiss winter, yes. I imagine, or sauna. Chiara, I thought it was really interesting when Hannah mentioned there about the importance of seeing things like sleep and air quality as part of your skincare routine. Do you have any unsung heroes in your regime? Well, actually, I was listening to a skincare expert speak recently, and she was trying to dispel this myth that creams are supposed to moisturize your skin in the sense that your skin drinks in the moisture. Of course, your skin doesn't drink. It's your body that drinks. And she said, you know, keep yourself hydrated. The cream actually does the work of keeping the elements at bay. But the most important thing is that keep yourself hydrated. And I have to say that ever since I heard her say that, I've started drinking a bit more and that feeling of tightness that you feel so much in winter when you get into the office after a walk in the blustery wind does actually go away. In saying that, I do have some help. I use a biotherm cream in the morning at home. And then when I get into the office, I keep a little stash, a secret stash of leather hass, honey bee cream that I do a little top up with. I'm a very, very big fan of the masks as well. I get my stash whenever I go on an Asian trip. So I got a very, very healthy package in Tokyo. And then another one when I was in Singapore, those Japanese rice masks are absolutely peerless. And then another the thing that really bugs me in winter is I have really sensitive lips and people don't think about that very much but I frequently end up wearing these lip balms that are so thick it looks like I'm about to scale a glacier because I'm basically like an arctic explorer but I have found this amazing Korean brand called La Neige and they do a lip sleeping mask which tastes amazing so you have to keep yourself from smacking yourself too much but you put it on before you go to bed and then off you go and you wake up in the morning and you're basically like a dewy rose it's fabulous and that is my secret bestowed upon to you now it's time for some christmas cheer if you're still on the lookout for a few stocking fillers you might want to turn your gaze to the ore mountain region in germany's free state of saxony here, handcraft wooden figurines, mainly on the theme of Christmas, have provided an unlikely success story for the former mining town of Siphon. 
The craft is a major magnet for tourists, but more importantly, it's a driver of local identity. Confect's Alexei Korilov went out to meet one of the producers making elaborate nativity figures, incense burners and Christmas pyramids. He sent us this report. For Mike Glockner, it's always Christmas. Das muss man sagen, wir produzieren das ganze Jahr. Viele fragen ja dann, wenn fängt er an mit Weihnachtsproduktion? Das machen wir natürlich vom 1.8. bis zum 31.12. Because, like seemingly everyone in the pretty town of Seifen, he makes nativity figures and other Christmas toys. Natürlich ist, ne, dass man zur Weihnachtszeit sich die Sachen auch zulegt. Seifen has been the center of toy making since the 18th century, when the surrounding tin mines were exhausted. This is a mining region, but when the mines declined, people had to come up with a different way to make money. So they started to carve, and soon wood carving became their main source of income. Mike's company, Ulmik, is one of nearly 300 toy manufacturers in the region. Their craft is officially known as All Mountain Folk Art, and it's zealously protected by local authorities. There is, of course, some competition, but in the end, it's not such a competitive situation, because everybody tries to create their own individual style. We see ourselves more as a community, not as competitors. Inside his workshop, Mike describes the production process. First, he and his business partner, Roy Seidler, make bodies, heads and limbs for the figures. Then comes gluing and painting. This takes a while, because even the smallest figures consist of at least a dozen pieces. And then, depending on the type of lacquer used, items must be left to dry for up to six weeks. That's a major logistical headache, Mike says, because he needs to ensure there is always enough stock for the tourists. That is a problem by the Kobal lack. How long do we Six weeks? Five, six weeks. So long durchlaufzeiten sind, is natürlich schwierig. We müssen also diese Figuren relativ frühzeitig fertig haben, weil die Trocknungszeiten so lang sind. But despite the hard work, he can't imagine doing anything else for a living. Because he wants to preserve the tradition that is the lifeblood of his region. It is the only source of income around. We are doing everything we can to keep it at the highest level of quality, to keep it special and to keep it alive. For Confect Corner, I'm Alexei Korolov. Thanks, Alexei. Coming up, we sign up for a wreath-making workshop, head to the kitchen to try some winter recipes and let our hair down on the dance floor. You're listening to Confect Corner. We turn to London now, where the city has been looking quite magical ahead of the holiday season. There's one particular set of festive decorations that's caught my eye, one mostly destined for the home. 
Christmas wreaths, garlands and centrepieces. Coming in a variety of styles, materials and textures, the art of festive tablescaping is quite a personal affair. Symmetry, height and shape can have a big impact in how your ornaments turn out and how they can transform your home. Tom Broom Hughes is Director of Horticulture at Petersham Nurseries. For him, the best wreath weaving is done in a sustainable manner with natural foliage and even better when you can use what you already have in your garden. I went along to Petersham Nurseries in Richmond, London to meet Tom for a little wreath-making session of my own. So we're sort of changing up this year how we do our wreaths. So traditionally wreaths were made on copper frames with materials that were bound on with wire. This year we're going 100% sustainable where actually everything is being bound onto a willow frame. We will use some moss on the frame as a sort of base just to preserve the materials for longer. But then also we'll be using string to bind all the materials on. And then everything that we have is all seasonal. So we're getting it from a lot of seasonal growers and flower farmers, generally British grown product. Our goal is that people will be taking home a wreath that they could actually literally throw the whole thing on the compost heap at the end of Christmas. There's a beautiful wreath in front of us. It's got dried oranges, berries and pine cones. It feels like something from kind of Christmas past. But I think I mean, you came rustling in with some amazing foliage that looks like it's been wrestled up you know, from a hedge. Yeah, so this, this <laughs> ivy, we've got a, a hedge outside that's going crazy. And it's got lovely berries on it at this time of year, so it's nice to bring those in. So what's nice is to think that even though this is very beautiful, and you're encouraging people to come here, but also listeners at home could get in the garden, find some evergreens, and then really start crafting their own pieces with what is around them. Yeah. So can you talk us through the potential of the kind of hedgerows? Even your neighbours will get their secateurs yes. out and yeah, snippers are walking, <laughs> walking <Well>, to work. <laughs> so here I've got like a selection of different greeneries, and at Christmas it really comes into its own. So I've got a selection of things here that you may or may not find. So we have um, general Christmas tree foliage. This is called Fraser fir. got beautiful texture on it. So this is even things, if you buy a Christmas tree, you can quite often make use of the lower branches that you cut off to put it in a Christmas tree stand. So you needn't throw that away. So it's making the most of what you're using. And then, of course, I was talking about this ivy. I really love ivy because to me it really represents Christmas and I love that whole idea of the holly and the ivy. You know, I think that's really important and it's nice to have something that grows abundantly as long as you leave some of the berries for the birds. Don't be too greedy. But ivy, you know, you quite often get on domestic properties or growing over walls, so it's often a thug. So it's good to make use of it. And lovely, the glossy leaves act as a good contrast to some of the more sort of glaucousy foliage that you have in a Christmas wreath. Also here I've got something called cupressus, which actually you might have heard in the 70s a lot of people planted Leylandii trees. Oh yeah, much maligned. Yeah, <laughs> but it's great at Christmas and a perfect wreath foliage and it's very aromatic, so it's got this lovely aroma to it. That's something that many a garden has a Leylandii tree in and you can actually go bonkers with it yeah. if you want to. Also, another thing, eucalyptus. So this is a really good foliage to use in wreaths. Also here I've got some sort of twiggery, which are hazel catkins. 
but you know they're lovely to add in as well to add a bit more texture to a wreath so it doesn't need to be just greenery you can add in twigs or sticks just to give it a bit more texture and a bit of contrast into the design and so then you've got this amazing structure which is willow yeah uh, that's been stripped and bent and, and sort of twisted into a circle Give me an insight into how you approach kind of designing this and putting it together and how you encourage people to be creative and not too much of a perfectionist in this. So to sort of start this design, initially you're going to have to think about the size of wherever you're going to hang it because you don't want to go too big that you won't be able to open your front door every time. That's very important to remember. But also what look you're trying to achieve. So if you want something that looks like a sort of beautiful lush circle of foliage and you're going to be covering the whole design but if you want something that's quite sort of contemporary in a way you might w want to think about using different foliages or one type of foliage rather than mixing different foliages together you know once you've got all your material set it won't take you that long to sort so you're of put keeping, together you're kind of keeping the reel of twine sort of going or are you doing each piece Attached the whole time. Okay. So when you start the wreath is when you attach a string. When you finish putting on the materials is when you cut the string. Okay, it's quite an amazing so, yeah, which actually, process. But when I first started making wreaths many, many years ago, as an amateur, I never knew that. So I would cut each individual bit, and it used to take me hours, and I used to think, surely it can't take that long. But actually, if you keep the string attached, it's almost like you get into this sort of rhythm and flow. And then when you're putting your materials on the wreath... So you need to think about your sort of outside approach. You need quite large pieces of material to go on the outside because else you're going to be sort of making it, you could make it quite constrained, whereas you might want to go a bit crazy, a bit wild, because you might have something that goes on a wall rather than a door. You bind on your largest pieces with the string, like so, and then that sort of creates your outer edge. And then so you, then you work backwards in a sort of having a medium size would act as your sort of middle, so you're layering up the okay. whole time. So the medium size would go in the middle, and then you just bind that on. So you're creating that sort of basis. And then small for the inside, because you do want to go fairly small because you're in danger of having a sort of mound of foliage rather than a wreath that you can look through the middle. So then I'm just going to add this in to the middle and then you continue on, but working backward. So you're working behind the previous piece of fur that you put on. So then you build up this beautiful lush profile all around the wreath. It's very methodical and almost yeah. kind of, you can see how it could actually be quite therapeutic to make a wreath. It is, in yeah. Way. And actually it's really something lovely that I think do something with your hands and focus on something. It's interesting you mentioned the holly and the ivy. It feels quite ancient. It feels kind of pre-Christmas in the sense that this type of wreath evergreens being brought inside, this has been happening for hundreds and hundreds of yeah. years. It's quite nice to think of that kind of festival of winter rather than necessarily Christmas. Yeah, I think that's what I love about wreaths. That you know they're round. It's a symbol of continuity. A sort of circle of life if you like it but also that I love that sort of Nordic approach of where they would put it on their door so it would be there for the whole winter and then take it down when the snow melted away so it's a symbol that there was green 
around the corner, even though it was in a sort of snow-covered land. You know, it's a community gesture in a sense, because it's a kind of smile to the street, yeah. rather than you doing everything inside. No, absolutely. You know, that's something that we're getting rather good at, actually, as well. I think, you know, wreaths have certainly, in the last five years, become quite a big thing. Most people associate wreaths with Christmas, whereas before, I know when I was growing up, they weren't that big of a deal. So, yeah, so it's nice to see that people are embracing nature, you know, hopefully that embracing it more in a more sustainable manner as well. How would you go about attaching these sort of more decorative elements? Because we've got some beautiful pine cones and some berries. Are those also kind of woven in to the kind of method that you just described? So generally, once the main construction is done, then you can actually use sort of add-in bits afterwards. So that's when we tend to add in the decorative adornments. But these things are actually wired, so they're things that you could actually pull out, you know, before you sort of throw them on the compost heap and save them for the following year. Yeah. I mean, I've got pine cones in my loft that have been there for 10 years, so... (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's good to make use of things year after year. And these oranges, I mean, you can literally put them in a warmish oven to dry them out, or if you have a dehydrator, and that can be a sort of something from the fruit bowl that you're not going to use, so... And amazing hydrangeas as well. Yeah, so these actually are from the garden. They were what we used sort of in vases in the restaurant. And then any hydrangeas that we have, we will dry them so that we've got them for wreath making at Christmas. And there's a big trend for dried flowers now. And I think it's a really lovely way to extend the season. So if you've got anything that you've bought that does dry gracefully in a vase, why not use it in a wreath? What are your tips for tablescaping? Because I know that's a big challenge for some hosts at this time of year, is kind of trying to get that sense of abundance and festive spirit at the table without going completely mad and sort of filling the place up so you can't put any actual food down. (laughs) That's (laughs) a problem in my house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, tell us about your own approach at home. It'd be great to get an insight. So at home, it's always... The whole concept of tablescaping for me is more about the initial impact because I think when you walk into a room where you're dining, to see a beautifully laid table as a florist... Obviously, food is secondary to the decoration. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. I think it's all about where you are, and it's about sort of matching what your environment is going to be. One thing I really do love using foliage as a table runner rather than an actual table runner. So it could be that you would use ivy. In my house, for example, I have eight magnolia grandiflora trees, which are big sort of evergreen magnolias, and I will always make a runner with the foliage has got sort of a brown underside and a glossy green top of the leaf. So I'll always do a sort of green runner and then I'll use the leaves to make name cards. So I'll then get a gold pen and write names actually on the leaf. That's a lovely idea. So it kind of marries up and matches everything. Um, I think also it's about not making it over complicated, so using lots of pattern. So it's about using things that, you know, your eye will be drawn to. So, for example, if you've got a white tablecloth, think about using lots of green and maybe using black napkins or something like that. Even in terms of vases you might use on the table, it could be simple jam jars, it could be water glasses, so it doesn't need to be fine china or anything that you've bought in especially. And in terms of the height, um, you know, people talk about centrepieces 
Um, but at the same time, you don't want something too high to kind of no. stop people actually conversing. Yeah, and that's, that's really important. You need to be quite low with tablescaping, and certainly where you can see people at eye level. That's really important because if you do go too high it just acts as a sort of barrier and then you don't have that sort of conviviality. It's good to sort of break some rules and as well as follow them but I think people get a little bit intimidated by Christmas and they become stressed and they become perfectionists and in a sense would you encourage people just to kind of be creative, throw the rule book out a little bit and just make something that is whimsical and fun in a sense. Yeah absolutely and it's actually a few years ago I did a green, white and black tablescape for Christmas and I had 16 people over for lunch and I was thinking it needed another sort of element in it and I didn't know. I ended up putting Brussels sprouts on the table but it just, it was the finishing touch. You can have fun with it, it doesn't necessarily have to be predictably Christmas. Yeah, the sprouts can come to the ball as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. What a festive report, Sophie. Was it your first time wreath weaving and would you do it again? I've done it before. For a couple of seasons, I've been wrestling the ivy off the wall of my garden and then weaving my own wreath. But I have to say, it was a bit wild and unkempt when I compared it to Tom Broom Hughes. (laughs) So there's definitely room for improvement. Listen, that's why he was there to guide the wonderful extremities of the ivy that you have been so unkemptly leaving on the side of your garden into these beautiful ornaments. You know, it was all you needed in life. For me, I grew up with my father making beautiful wreaths just outside the door in our apartment. And it was a bit of a, almost like a competition among my neighbours as to who had the best wreath. And my father always made a point of making his absolutely completely natural. He hated using anything artificial in it, so he'd go out and find beautiful red berries and ivy and all sorts of things on long walks in the Turinese countryside and come back and I'd be amazed at what he managed to put together from what I saw as craps just the day before. What's funny is that ever since I've been living in London, um, I don't have quite the same tradition, partly because I've never really had a full London Christmas. I'm always away when Christmas Day comes. And so part of me thinks that it may be making a whole Christmas tree when I'm going to be leaving it away to wither on its own for a couple of weeks isn't worth it. But I have to say, I think I lose out on a lot of the Christmas spirit. So I'm determined to make the most of the new Christmas tree shop that pops up at the library just at the corner of my street. And this year I'm going to make it a really festive one. Some of your family traditions and and get wreath weaving as well, Chiara. Um, Marcella, what about you? I'd love to see how you decorate a tree. I'm sure it'd be completely spectacular. (laughs) Not at at all, Sophie. In contrary, it has to be very, very practical because I spend Christmas often up in the mountains and I go up with the train. So I have to carry every each uh, decoration I'm putting on the tree. So my solution, which I found a couple of years ago, is I take these little golden electric lights with me. That's for the lighting. And then I've choose this uh, beautiful satin ribbon, either in all white or with green and red checks. And that's it. My tree is all full of ribbons and the lights. Oh, so, so beautiful. Spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> but light, lightweight. 
My Swiss neighbour at home, she has a little party every year for the lighting of the candles on her Christmas tree, the real candles. And then it's just a lovely moment to see the flickering lights on a Christmas tree rather than electric ones. But then you always do wonder whether the whole thing's going to go up because <laughs> and, and the, the drier the tree looks, it's early in the season. So the tree's pretty kind of like resilient. But I imagine if you did it a few weeks later, it might be a real fire hazard. <laughs> and now to the dramatic mountains of the Arlberg Massif where chefs Ethel Hoon and Jakob Zeller of restaurant Clausselet know how to make the most of the regional produce. They squirrel away as much as possible during the summer months, infusing, drying and fermenting whatever delicacies nature offers them. As the seasons change and the land is covered in snow, they then turn to their larder, where they can find that drop of infused vinegar or handful of fermented berries to create the perfect cold-weather dishes for their cosy restaurant. Comfort contributor Miriam Zumbul visited the chefs to find out more about the magic of their winter warming cooking. Restaurant Klösterle is a cosy and welcoming place and such is the way Ethel Hohn and Jakob Zeller greet their guests. Big smiles, warm welcomes. And as Ethel tells me, every good meal starts with an apero. Even on days off, right after breakfast, they still wonder, what will we have for apero? <laughs> it sets the mood for yeah. a meal, I think. Jakob and I always cook most of our meals. So you have a little drink as you're cooking and it lightens. I think it makes the atmosphere like a lot lighter. A good drink, some nibbles, bread and butter. The perfect recipe to kick up the night and set the tone. Etel cuts open a large loaf of sourdough, while Jakob arranges a big chunk of alpine butter on a wooden board. This counts as a dish on its own and is served with heartwarming laughter. I think it's something that everyone can relate to. You think bread and butter is so simple, but there can be so many variations of those two ingredients. You know, you can have a really dense kind of Danish style seeded loaf. We can have a baguette, light, crunchy, or you can have what we do with our bread and closely is a sourdough loaf with no kind of fixed recipe. We have a fixed technique that we do. What kind of grains or what kind of flours we put in changes depending on you know how we feel the meal should be so if if the meal is towards spring and it's getting a bit lighter in terms of produce we actually make maybe a seedier loaf and in winter with heavy kind of flavors more cream or dairy we make a loaf that is a bit wider and with less whole grains or less seeds so it goes better with the meal i think bread is nutritious if you ferment it the right way if you use the right grains you don't need anything else, bread, butter, salt. A slice of good sourdough bread also comes in handy when mopping up the sauce of a gratin. Restaurant Klösterle stands as one of the last remaining Walser houses from the 16th century in Austria's Zuger Valley and is surrounded by large rocky mountains and endless natural meadows. Inspired by this history, their dishes tell tales of their deep connection to the land. The preparation for their winter meal starts months before the first snowflakes begin to settle on the ground. Throughout the summer, they infuse vinegar with rose petals, they pickle and ferment vegetables, and dry tender chamomile blossoms and herbs from the local forest. All with the aim to showcase the richness of the regional produce during the colder months. Ethel grabs a jar of infused roven berries from their well-stocked larder. Imagine it as a beautiful chamber, a library of flavors, 
filled with an abundance of aromas. It's definitely a place we find ourselves in a lot in winter when we're planning menus. There are some things that we do now knowing exactly what we'll use it for in winter. So for example, we do apricot compote from these apricots in Finchgau. They have a super nice like aroma and acidity. And we know that we're going to use it for a pavlova dish in winter. So the hundred jars of apricot compote we do, we know it's going to last us for two months in the winter or three months in the winter for this one specific dessert dish. And then some other things we do because we really like the produce that we have in summer and we don't get to use it in winter mm-hmm. or we don't get it in winter. So for example, from our vegetable farmer, we're getting really beautiful um, tomatoes. And what we've done is to lacto-ferment them. The juice that comes out, we use it to season different broths and the pulp that we get, we dry it and make a tomato paste. Or we've semi-dried them and put them into oil. And so you can have kind of these like summery, intensely preserved summery flavors in winter. It's no coincidence that preserves and fermentations are central to Ethel and Jakob's food philosophy. The pair met in the kitchen at restaurant Feviken in Sweden. Winters were long and produce often had to be preserved to ensure that food was available all year round. Now settled in the Vorarlberg region, the chefs also draw on the traditions of the area. They work hand in hand with Vorarlberg's producers who share their commitment to quality and respect for nature. We've always wanted to work with the seasons and with the producers around us. And in this way, we can do both and still have a menu that is diverse. It has a lot of variety of flavors and ingredients, but still really speaks of that sense of place. You know, you are in Vorarlberg. Mm-hmm. We're not importing tomatoes from Australia in winter or from a greenhouse in the Netherlands mm-hmm. or baby fennel from somewhere in winter. We have all these products like in the cellar for us to use. They're not fresh, but they've been preserved in a way that you can still taste. You can still know what they are, eating them on the plate. Jakob is always keeping an eye on the progress of nature. Persimons are picked near South Tyrol in October and then perfectly ripe in their basement until they are soft and have developed their honey-like aroma. A sweetness, as Etel says, to harmonize with a winter salad full of more bitter flavors. In everything they do, they keep things straightforward. Think crisp salads with fruity vinaigrettes, warming brats with crunchy vegetables, gratins with deep umami and velvety desserts. The concept and creation of their menus often begins by opening a jar of their preserved delicacies. I think for us, every time we create a meal, it's always about, first of all, kind of looking at what produce we're getting in. Or the focus is always what's in season, first of all. So we know all the root vegetables are in season, winter salads. And then going from there and looking at the pantry that we've created over summer and fall and seeing what can we incorporate from the pantry into these like fresher ingredients that we're getting. Mm-hmm. So it's this play of like really winter ingredients and flavors that we preserve from summer and fall and where we can use certain components to create a more exciting or colorful dish. But yeah, still keeping it quite rustic I would say or simple mm-hmm. you know it's deep true flavors of the ingredient a couple of playful touches I would say mm-hmm. but we I think we work with such great produce already mm-hmm. so why do too much to it so that's always our motto like do just enough you know so that it's still beetroot or mm-hmm. it's still a duck that it's just roasted. The duck is at the center of their Christmas dinner this year for the chefs at home that shy away from roasting this bird Ethel has some words of encouragement. 
people can be quite intimidated by meat cooking in general. Mm. But I think duck is quite a forgiving meat to cook. I think one thing we good to have for a home kitchen is to get a, a thermometer. It doesn't have to be digital. Mm. You know, if you're cooking at home, get to know some cooking temperatures for meats. Then you can't really go wrong. You know, you roast the bird in the oven, you leave it for... 45 minutes or an hour or more depending on the mm-hmm. size but you know with a duck I would like to serve it at 60 to 65 degrees mm-hmm. and it's going to be medium well pink in the middle and it's also you know I think it's usually a bird with quite a lot of fat so as long as you don't forget the bird in the oven you'll be just fine serving a duck maybe with oven roasted beetroots as Ethel and Jakob do on a festive day a festive meal doesn't have to be fussy just something simple and delicious maybe with a bottle of wine to share too. Every meal can be a celebration, you know, and like doesn't have to be extravagant. It's mm-hmm. a celebration of being able to eat eat and eat simply but well and with big or small company. No wonder a visit to Klosterle feels like a homecoming. It's just like sharing stories and plates with close friends around the table. And of course, not forgetting that zesty warming apero to set the perfect mood. That was chefs Ethel Hoon and Jakob Zeller of Restaurant Klosterlay in conversation with Miriam Zumbel. You're listening to Confect Corner. And now for this episode's final thought. We turn to the language of dance. Writer Francesca Gavin muses on the positive impact of learning some moves. Can you conjure that satisfying sense of completion you get when you follow a recipe and ting, that souffle rises or that hollandaise just works? I get a magnified sense of that every time I learn to dance. I stumbled into the world of choreographed routines seven years ago, initially as a form of exercise. Like many little girls, I'd done ballet, but I stopped when I was 11 after my new glasses spun off my head during a pirouette. As an adult, I tried a few types of dance classes here and there, a comedic belly dancing session, a mildly sleazy dose of salsa. Taking up commercial dance in its routines is like studying a language. You learn a phrase or move and then add on sections. Think sentence structure. The cat sat. The cat sat on the mat. The cat sat on the mat with a flat hat. Routines are taught in counts of eight, sometimes by number, sometimes by lyric. Following choreography is far from the euphoric freeform movement of the club. It is about repetition and detail. It is about musicality and getting the little tick-tick booms of a bass drum or a hi-hat. It is about constantly practicing a move until you crack it. That's not to say there isn't freedom in it, of course. In fact, my addiction to choreography exploded in lockdown. As the world lost all sense of structure, I created my own. I started building up from one to three hours a day, doing online classes as a mental break in between writing a book on collage art. The wooden floors of my Vienna Outbau became a dance studio. I even resisted buying a coffee table for a year so I wouldn't have to move furniture for a class. I grew increasingly fit by accident, a byproduct of something joyful. When I dance, stress and grump quickly dissolve to be replaced by an ice cream sundae of positive hormones. Finally, I went to a studio. Empire Dance in the fifth floor of a nondescript modern building just near hip Ippenplatz. Due to the recent influx of people from the Ukraine, the classes are now all in English. The beginner choreo with Carolyn Rodriguez to a Rihanna remix was a dream. I left smiling, dripping with sweat, and eager to return. 
It doesn't surprise me to hear that studies have proven that dancing increases plasticity in the brain. Compared to all other conventional fitness activities, dancing's combination of physical movement and memory use makes brains bigger and even counteracts aging, a 2018 study found. When you manage to memorize that full count of eight without thinking, it's like the realization that you can have a conversation in your newly learned tongue. It might be one of the best feelings you ever have. That was writer Francesca Gavin. Now, Marcella, I've seen you on a dance floor, but have you ever taken any lessons? I was 17, and my mother said I have to know the classic dances like cha-cha-cha, foxtrot, uh, you know, tango, and waltz. And I hated it. I hated this Tuesday evening so much. But finally it turned out I could dance waltz with my grandfather, and uh, this was actually the most beautiful experience I made. So finally it was worth of it, but yeah, I don't have the most beautiful <laughs> memories to it. That's so wonderful, Martella. I'm so jealous in a way because my mother is actually a very accomplished dancer. She loves ballroom dancing. And whenever I'm back at Christmas with my parents, she always tries to encourage me to embrace her and do a proper waltz in the middle of the living room. And we don't live in as big enough an apartment that is a ballroom. It's really quite a squished little dance that we do. But I do find it so beautiful that it's a moment that she really wants to share with me. And sometimes I'm a little bit regretful that I don't know the proper movements to my my feet but I do love dancing so much if anybody has ever seen me on a party dance floor they will be able to attest that I'm always the last one to leave even though frequently I'll probably be shimmying away a bit more to kind of 80s classics than the waltz but I find it so liberating it's one of my favorite things about the festive season just the amount of dancing that's ahead of us I'm ready (laughs) (laughs) I know you are that's brilliant and I can attest now that you are (laughs) always the last on the dance floor. (laughs) Listen after the wreath making workshop next time maybe we should all take a trip down to uh, waltz class and then we'll be the perfect festive trio. Cha-cha-cha, I think, maybe. Yes, maybe. Maybe the cha-cha-cha is more in our cause. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Chiara Rumella and Marcella Palak as ever. The winter issue of Confect magazine is out now. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds and edited by Christy O'Grady. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, comments on the show, or simply want to say hi, you can reach us at audio at confectmagazine.com. We'll be back next month, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove in Zurich, goodbye, thanks for listening, and have a great 2023.